This episode contains graphic content that may be alarming to some. Listener discretion is advised. Part of stand-up is actually failure. Like, if there was ever the perfect example of a, yeah, I fucked up profession, it's stand-up. Come on, man, let's go. Let's get to it one more time. This is a show inspired by one of my kids who, for them, making mistakes and facing failure when things aren't predictable can be really tough. But life isn't predictable. If you want to be successful at anything, mistakes and failure, they're just required. You've got to fall down if you want to move ahead. And in today's social media world, we're so good at posting our best angles with the best filters. We're not posting the mistakes we make. We're posting our victories. But that's not real life. Being a Grammy-nominated songwriter, producer, and entrepreneur, I get to hang with some of the most influential, bigger-than-life human beings on the planet. And even when making the biggest hit records, few nail it on the first take. I'm going to try and challenge the stigma of fucking up and explore how even the most successful people face personal and professional moments of doubt and hopefully show all of us that our failures are more fragile moments are where greatness is born. I'm your host, Billy Mann, and this is Yeah, I Fucked That Up. interesting how musicians and comedians super connected first of all you have to be willing to play a pretty bad joke on yourself to think you can have a career in music that's my attempt at humor which clearly proves that i am not inherently funny i've got dad jokes that's basically the extent of it the rest is like i know music called out to me as a little kid and i just had a thing that i just needed to unearth and I think comedians are born funny and they have a thing and then they need to just nurture it and figure out like, I'm funny, like what does this mean? And the other similarity that I find between comedians and musical artists is that a lot of the time, the best material comes from the toughest experiences in life. What you can speak on as a comedian is yourself and the humanity in us and trying to find humor in it to help us all along. Today's guest is one of those comedians that's funny and has something to say and has found comedy as a vehicle for him to not just be funny, but to be deep and to move culture forward. In 2016, Wired Magazine called him the best political comedian you've never heard of. Since then, his star has risen tremendously. He has a documentary, The Problem with Apu, hosted podcasts, toured as a stand-up everywhere, hosted the super fun Netflix food competition series, Snack vs. Chef. And his latest comedy special and album is called Vacation Baby. I've watched it. It's hilarious. And I'm talking about Hurry Kundabolu. We're lucky to have you, Hurry, on Yeah, I Fucked That Up. Thank you. I want to dive into the glorifying, wonderful moments of failure in a second, but can you just like share a little bit of how you got started in stand-up? Well, I started in high school. I started a comedy night. It was called Comedy Night. Uh, I spent a lot of time on every other aspect of the show except the name. And it was it was one of those things where I'd seen like Chris Rock and Margaret Cho and all these amazing comedians and felt like, okay, I think I can do this. Because there really weren't other examples of like South Asians doing stand-up. So 
it was kind of like, wow, okay, maybe there's a possibility because I love to perform and this is something that like gives you kind of the ability to kind of tell your own stories and stuff. So I did it in high school and then I went to college up in Maine. Now Mm -hmm. I grew up in Queens, New York, so Maine was a jump and there was something about, you know, getting attention you didn't want. Nothing was mean spirited, but it was the sense of I stood out in a way that I, I never had before and I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. So stand up to me was, okay, if you're going to pay attention to me, it's going to be on my terms. Right. I'm not going to be the Indian guy on campus. I'm going to be the Indian guy who does stand up comedy on campus. And you're going to hear me, you know, material changed from kind of impressions of my parents and stuff that I would would be horrified if people heard now. To like something that was a little more politically minded, socially minded. Definitely, I'm I'm somebody shaped by 9/11, both as a New Yorker and as a, a brown person. Mm. It it made me just a much more critical and political person. Do you feel that your comedy was born out of that moment? Did that have a big impact on what motivated you to do it? I think there's two sides of that. I think that there's a truth to that, like comedy as a survival mechanism, mm. because like what. Why do we laugh? Why do we have senses of humor? Like, if those things have lasted this long, they must have some evolutionary benefit. I didn't go on stage thinking I need to change the world because I think I don't make great comedy when I'm thinking about the point before the laugh. What was that like doing stand-up on TV for the first time? Well, the first time I went on television, strangely enough, was 2007, February 2007. So I'd moved to Seattle to be an immigrant rights organizer. Right. And I did comedy at night as a hobby, because that's where I figured it would be. And I ended up getting discovered by the HBO Comedy Festival, was on Jimmy Kimmel Live, got a manager. So I had the infrastructure of a comedy career while I was still working as an organizer, which was strange because that wasn't the goal. And I also got into the London School of Economics, which was the plan to get a master's in human rights. So I ended up taking a year off and getting the master's and then coming back. So I was getting all these things without trying as a profession without making like pushing this it was like almost this is calling me to do it this is an opportunity we're giving you that had never existed before you're going to be one of the first south asians to break through like it's you and at that point aziz had just started to get like noted as a standard russell peters was a global stand-up who hadn't broken big in america but was certainly a global figure like you're seeing the beginnings of that. You're seeing Mindy Kaling on TV and it felt like, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm part of this. Mm-hmm. And that's what led to me pursuing comedy. What was Kimmel um, like? If, if that was your first appearance, what terrifying. was Terrifying. Like? <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. I had work the next day. I took a day off to be on TV. And <laughs> so I fly in. I remember I stayed at the Roosevelt Hotel I was amazed. I'd never stayed at a, a fancy hotel before. You know, me and my family, we were always at travel lodges and stuff. So all of a sudden, I'm at this, like, fancy hotel. I remember they had seaweed shampoo and, and, and pomegranate conditioner. And the, the concept of that blew my mind. Everything about the experience. And then the next day, I get to see the, the theater Kimmel's at. And they're showing me around before the show. I go out front, I see the long line of people about to get in. Strangely enough, I saw my therapist from Seattle in the line, which was like a, which was like a dream, like, Sue? And she's like, hey, what are you doing here? Oh, we came to see the show. We're, I'm taking a little vacation. And meanwhile, I hadn't spoken to her in months. I, I 
I kind of ghosted my therapist. <laughs> it's the first time I'd done therapy. I'd done it for a couple of months and I was making some progress, but I was like, oh, I don't need this. And right. instead of having the guts to be like, I don't think this is working. So I just stopped <laughs> replying, stopped going. So the last time I, we saw each other was at that national TV recording. Right. You didn't uh, bring it into your act. It wasn't like, by the way, my oh, therapist no. is here. No. <laughs> I was, I mean, at that point, I was terrified of being on TV. I'm stiff as a board. I do a set that I look at now and I'm so embarrassed by just because it's not nearly what I'm capable of and wasn't what I was capable of back then either. I was mm. a deer in headlights the whole time and so like scripted and just trying to get through it. And I did it. Kimmel pronounced my name Kundabalu, Hari Kundabalu. And uh, I didn't correct him, obviously, because I'm terrified to be there. <laughs> and for the next maybe six, seven years, that's all I ever got called was Kundabalu because that was the one example people had. What's interesting to me is this concept of the overnight success that sometimes, most of the time, takes a lot longer. It's like cutting through the volume of everything is really, it's super challenging. All right, so you go back to school, you get your master's degree, you hit the road, and then, you know, when you think about your worst fuck-ups, is there a first one that you remember when I was in college, I would do open mics every couple of months. It wasn't like I was going up every day. Mm -hmm. And it was always a big deal on campus when I did stand-up because I was the only show in town. So, <laughs> you know, like 100 people would show up at an open mic just to see what I was working on. And I remember just feeling really excited. You know, this was my sophomore year, and I just tanked. I bombed for the first time, really in front of everybody. And I didn't do stand-up again for four or five months. It's funny to think about now because part of stand-up is actually failure. Like, it, you know, if there was ever the perfect example of a, yeah, I fucked up profession, it's stand-up. Every single show, you might bomb a joke. I've seen Jim Gaffigan work out new material and he struggles with new stuff sometimes too and until it becomes brilliant. Like, it, this is part of stand-up. It is the public failure. There isn't an edit that you show the audience that's, you know, perfect. The beginning of a joke is literally you guessing and hoping and feeling through it and trying to get the audience to trust you. So every single time on stage, there's a lesson I can learn. And it's often a painful one. You know, every mm -hmm. time you miss a joke and you hear that splatter, like that, that scattered applause or one laugh or no laughs, no laughs is better than one laugh. One mm. laugh just makes it even worse. <laughs> but yeah, I think, because no laughs means you might have screwed up the setup or the punch. And one laugh means it's just not funny. And only one person laughed at it. Mm. Um, but that's all part of it, like learning to bomb. So I think I had to fail a lot every single show at some point to get to a place where I failed less. Or if I failed, I played it off and learning that, as long as far as the audience knows, everything right. is going according to plan. The audience has no idea that you fucked up unless you let them know. Like you are completely in control of the situation. But when you don't have that confidence, which I certainly did not have for a long time, it was terrifying. If we're talking about the first time I fucked up publicly and I, I was really proud of myself, it would have been Letterman. 
because I was on Letterman and I'd practiced this set for months. And, you know, to get a set on Letterman, especially back then, it was a big deal. Like I'd been on Conan a couple of times and that to me was the dream because Conan was my dude. That was the person I grew up on. But Ed Sullivan Theater, like Letterman for my parents and for everyone they knew, that's the big one. Mm. That's the one they paid attention to. That's the one that that really meant you made it. And so I knew this set was a big deal. I was wearing a suit, never worn a suit on stage. Wow. And But you, you had to wear a suit on Letterman, which my dad loved because he'd been telling me for years I should be wearing a suit, <laughs> which he's still wrong about. He is still, unless I'm a ventriloquist dummy, there is no reason <laughs> I should have a suit on stage. <laughs> Wait, so what happened? So you go, You first of all, it's freezing because I know Letterman kept the venue oh, yeah. like a meat locker. I probably didn't even feel that because I'm sweating and nervous. <laughs> I went up. I knew I knew my set. I had done it so much during the audition process, during the just warming it up to the point I was almost bored of it because I, I just knew it so well. And I do the first joke. It lands. I'm feeling good. Start the second joke. It was a it was a joke, if I remember right, about me at the airport getting into my dad's car and someone confusing my dad for a cab driver. And so they thought I stole their car. This was before Uber, by the way. And I, I just stopped. I forgot where the joke was going, which was wild because I'd been doing this joke for a period, like a good year plus. I'd warmed it up for this thing and I froze. And it felt like I froze for like 10 minutes it was probably five to 10 seconds, but in front of a packed Ed Sullivan Theater with the cameras rolling, with my parents in the audience, it was torture. It's like, I have this big moment and I choked and, you know, a million thoughts are going through my, and then all of a sudden, you know, it just clicks. Again, it was like 10 seconds, like, do your, do your act. What mm -hmm. are you doing? Mm -hmm. And so I reset. They didn't even need to tell me what to do. I, I'd done it enough times where I... Went a couple of lines before I screwed up, started, pretended like nothing happened, went through the next five minutes pretty flawlessly, and did the set. Great reaction, great responses. Letterman comes over and says, I did great. And right before, you know, as the break was about to start, I, I apologized to him, like, Dave, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I messed that up. And he's like, look, they're going to edit it. You're not going to know the difference. That was a fantastic set. Amazing. And so, so you were up there doing it. You fuck up, and then you got a chance to redo it. They didn't even need to tell me. That was the thing. You know, if they had <laughs> told me, it would have been worse. I knew what to do. Like I had been in that situation right. before. You know, but it's never. It's not Letterman. You don't screw up on Letterman, and then right. you just realize like, this is television. You've done television. You know how this works. Yeah, you're wearing a suit right now. Yeah, your parents are in the audience. It almost feels like a bad dream. But you know your set. It's not the million great sets that got me there. It was the failed sets. It was the stuff that didn't work. It was the recoveries. That's what set up that moment. Mm. And it was that kind of quick, like, remembering why I was there and what my job is and how I've done this. Like, in a split second, just, like, just go. Pretend nothing happened. And... You know, I would not have been able to do that without all the screw-ups, fundamentally. Right, but what changed, though, as a result of that experience in the way that you've done TV appearances or stand-up? Did something click differently for you? Oh, the anxiety is not there the same way. That was the biggest stage at that point in my life to screw up on. And 
it was just like the other times I like, you know, you goof lines on television and then you just that's easy enough. And I'd done that enough times. Letterman, though, was it was the biggest thing. It was like the most viewers that I'd ever been in front of because it was Letterman. So it was just like this is it's all the same. It's everything, you know, it doesn't matter what the stage is. It's the same job and you know how to do the job. So, I mean, to me, it was like that last like reminder of this isn't a level you can't handle. What did your parents feel about it? Like, you know, they were there. My mom said that like her heart dropped. Like she was just like, oh, my kid, like this is terrible. And then she said she'd never been prouder of me than when she saw the recovery. And when she's like, when I saw that, I'm like, this is why he's a professional. This is why he does this for a living. That was the moment where I'm like, yes, like this is why you're up there. And it felt great to hear that from her because after I did Kimmel, I didn't get that from her. Everyone said I did great at Kimmel and how excited they were for me. My mom's like, you could do better. It was crushing. She was right, but I didn't want to hear that because it was the, such a high to be on TV. To have her say, even when I screwed up, like, I've never been prouder. Mm -hmm. You know, that's as high a level of praise as you can get, at least to me. Is there one mistake that you've made that you feel like, okay, that's that was a big one, even a business mistake, a private mistake that jumps yeah. out? I mean, they're connected, right? Especially when your business is you. The public and the private, you know, like, not addressing mental health issues earlier, certainly. I had terrible depression and anxiety that I refused to really address, you know. I hadn't seen a therapist since Sue back in Seattle. Right. <laughs> and, you know, that was, at that point, that was like seven or eight years ago. And that was probably an opportunity, if I continued with it or with another therapist, to really have grown, not just in terms of my career and my skills, but emotionally. And I, I didn't. And so... There was a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear to do anything but stand-up. Because stand-up was like, I knew how to do this. I was so afraid of going outside of the lane. And in addition to, I'm barely hanging on as a human being. And in relationships where they're falling apart over the course of my career, just relationships that aren't working. And there was just so much that wasn't working for me. And I, I just... It was generally not a positive person, even during success. And instead of taking that as a clue to like, you got to change things, I just kept pushing harder and harder till I burnt myself out mm. and had to take a little bit of a break, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. Best thing that ever happened to me was burning out. And it was embarrassing, but being able to burn out like, got me back on the horse, which is an expression I've never used before. <laughs> Been working with a therapist who's changed my life. And I remember the first day I woke up and it felt like the next day. Because when you're depressed, at least for me, when I was depressed, every day was an extension of the last day. It's like if you have a fight, you know, the goal is the next day is the next day. And then you, you feel better. I never felt better. Everything was just cumulative. It just added up. And having the ability to clear the slate, all of a sudden you have all this space free in your brain to do other things. What did it look like, like this is not sustainable? What were the symptoms of that that brought you to that breaking point? Was there one moment that jumps out to you that you remember? Anxiety attacks, panic attacks. I 
had a panic attack on a train going from Seattle, Washington to Portland, Oregon. And by the time I got to Olympia, I was having a panic attack and I didn't quite know what it was. And I don't think I'd saw them as panic attacks. I wasn't sure what they were. And, and the idea of a panic attack, just even calling it that felt embarrassing at the time. And so they stopped the train. Ambulance came. I got into this ambulance. I remember it was surreal. I remember being in the train, almost passed out, hearing an announcement. Is there a doctor on board? We have a sick passenger. And I remember thinking, who's sick? Like the idea it was me. It was, it was just still, it was so surreal get into the ambulance, go to the hospital in Olympia. They did a ton of tests on me, like everything you can do. And by the end of it, the doctor's like, there's nothing going on. I'm pretty sure you had a panic attack. And what you need to do is take off. You need to take off work. You need to stop, which is something that seemed absurd. Like the idea of stopping, you can't stop. If I stop, something amazing might happen and I might miss it. Like, you know, if I stop, then nobody's going to call me anymore because I had to cancel gigs. They're not going to give me other offers. If I if I stop, my reps won't want to work with me anymore. Like if I I can't stop, you can't stop. There's no vacations in this business. There's no breaks. You just got to keep going until you make it. And I had to stop. I literally had to stop because panic attacks made me stop. I literally could not function. And Seattle is still a place that's the closest to my heart outside of New York. It is where my best friends are. And I remember two of my best friends, they drove down from Seattle down to Olympia to pick me up at the, the hospital and drove me back up to Seattle. And I stayed in Seattle for a few months and just tried to, didn't perform, got through panic attacks, tried to rebuild myself. And at that point, you know, I, I had taken, I think maybe three months off, maybe, maybe four months, but probably like three months, which now doesn't seem that long to be honest, but it's what I needed because it gave me time to just take care of myself. I ended up ending a relationship, which is probably the best thing for both of us. I ended up just like spending time with my family. I had time to make calls and talk to my friends. And the calls weren't just like, help, I don't feel good. When you don't have a therapist, you basically are using your friends and family as your pseudo-therapist, and you burn them out, and it's really painful for everybody. So just the ability to just function again, like when the fear of panic attacks went away, it never really goes away, but like is is such a, a small part of your life, you don't even really think about it. I mean, that's when you're free again. I was trapped in it. So after that, all of a sudden, everything opened up. I'm starting to think about why don't I pitch TV stuff? Why don't I do other things? What am I afraid of? Before, I'm barely hanging on to stand-up. I'm barely hanging on to my personal life. I'm barely hanging on. The idea of adding anything else to that, like, that's nuts. Why would I add anything to what already feels so heavy? And then you realize the heaviest part of that was your mental health. That's what the biggest weight was. It wasn't your career. It wasn't your family. It wasn't your relationship. It was like the fact that you were not working to the 10th of your ability and you were just dragging yourself through the day. And after I got to a place where, you know, I can go back on stage, I felt the difference on stage because I remember during the worst of that, it was like rote memorization. I was doing the job 
And as far as the audience knew, I was doing it well, but I was just going through the motions. Like, I don't think I remembered what it felt like to, to be completely in it consistently. Like, I'd have good shows. There were moments where I was in it. But if somebody heckled, I would flip out. I wasn't clever. I would just lose it. Like, to the point where the rest of the audience is like, what the hell just happened? Like, I just, and it, it was almost like, don't you realize that I have a million things going on in my head right now? And you just added something else that I cannot deal with? Like, I'm barely getting through this. What was what was the heckling like, though? Like, what was the experience like? Like, what do you remember anything in particular where you just, it sounds like you were there but not present. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a variety, you know, and it changed over time, especially in those early years. The heckling, a lot of it was, it was the mix of drunk people just yelling random shit mm -hmm. or, you know, bachelorette party screaming, you know, that kind of stuff. Like a dude thinking he's funnier than the comic because he has to impress his girl. Like it's the usual kind of stuff mixed with the fact I talk about race and, and issues that really like, you know, not everybody's going to be on the same page with me politically. I've dealt with people yelling out racist stuff. The worst stuff is when people yell it out, but not loud enough for everyone to hear because they're in like the first or second row and they say it loud enough so I can hear it. So then it's like, do I have to stop the show to address it or do I just eat whatever racist stuff they said, take it in and keep moving? Right. That stuff was brutal, like, especially as my mental health was deteriorating. It was like an added like, ah, like just cannot... I cannot be clever in response. I don't have it in me. It's sort of like social media today is a bit like that stage, right? Except for a stand-up comic, cancel culture is, it, it, you're there. It's like the person who's tweeting whatever snarky bullshit at somebody where they're doing from their basement. They're, they're, they're actually there in the room. So I sort of imagine, you know, I'm thinking to myself, what kind of social media hate you must have dealt with over the years sure and which is worse is it on stage in front of people dealing with hecklers or is it having your life threatened or whatever kind of toxic shit comes out on social media i would have said the stage uh, immediately before but i think that because the thought is i can just get off of social media the problem is when you get so addicted to social media when it feels like a big part of your career, like Elon Musk buying Twitter was the best thing that happened to me because it made me not want to use it. And to actually have my brain free also, because I was just putting premises on Twitter and forgetting I ever wrote it because the immediate gratification of a like and a retweet almost was enough. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm a professional comedian. I'm giving this stuff away and not working with it. In addition to the time wasted seeing what random people think of me especially after I released my problem with Apu documentary, like I was getting death threats in so many different languages. Google translating a death threat is a very unique experience, <laughs> so, which I don't wish on anyone, but it, it is kind of amazing to be like, oh, there's so many different ways to threaten a person. There's so many different analogies. There's so many different metaphors. It's just, it's amazing. But, you know, that really messed with me, you know, and, and the easy thing was don't look. And I couldn't not look. But now it, I will say dealing with hecklers now is, is, you know, is so much better because with, with hecklers, you can actually shut them down or you can have somebody kick them out. With Twitter, it's so much harder to get rid of somebody. They just have a new account. It's like somebody getting kicked out of the show and coming back with a pair of those like nose mustache glasses. 
you know, those Groucho <laughs> Mark glasses, and he just gets let right back in. It's a different guy. It's, like, it's the same guy. And that's what it's like. I want to talk about the documentary, The Problem with Apu, and what was the deal like around that? What was what was that experience working with a, a, a major TV network? Well, first of all, to be able to pitch it and, and actually pursue it was the direct result of the mental health stuff. Like, all of a sudden, I felt confident enough to try something different. And it was meant to be a side project. The goal was to, like, get a Netflix special and to work towards that to elevate my stand-up. And this was like a cool thing that, you know, I'd done the premise of Apu being a racist character on Totally Buys, W. Kamau Bell's old show, and people were really interested in it. They found it to be a, an interesting new idea. And to me, it was like, what, you, don't, you all don't know this? Like, And you start to realize, no, it's your community that talked about this for 20 years. Nobody else was thinking about it. So I wanted to pitch it. True TV bought it. And in order to sweeten the deal, they threw in a TV pilot. Which to me is like, are you kidding me? This is amazing. Like, I get this documentary, and then I also get a chance to be on TV regularly. And granted, it's a network where prank shows are the primary thing, but whatever, it's TV. And, you know, I was excited, and then I was told by a network executive, we want you to do both at the same time. Their thinking is, we get the documentary out, it does well, and that sets up your series. And my thinking is... I've never made a documentary before. I've never made a TV pilot before. And you've never made a documentary before as a network. Why are we trying to do both of these things at the same time? And both of these tasks require attention. So I basically said, that's, that's a lot to do at the same time. And the executive said, well, you're just going to have to sleep a lot less. And the idea that she would say that told me she didn't know how things got made. So at a certain point in the process... I'm in a writer's room trying to develop a TV pilot, but I keep getting called out to work on an edit of a documentary that had nothing to do with the TV thing. And it got to the point where both got shortchanged. I was stressed out of my mind. This is definitely something I would not have been able to handle a few years previous. And I felt like all the work I did in mental health came in handy because I needed it to get through this process where I wasn't sleeping where I was completely exhausted and anxious. And as a result, really, the thing that got hurt the most was the pilot. I ended up relying on a lot of old stand-up material because I knew it would work. I didn't have time to be in a writer's room constantly to develop new ideas the way I wanted to because I was in an edit room while I was supposed to be writing. So I, I relied on a bunch of old ideas, and I definitely felt like I didn't give it enough time in the edit, and I definitely felt like... The stuff on stage, it was funny, but it wasn't great for television. The show at the end of it, like as a live show, went off great. But, you know, it didn't really work for a TV show. And I think in my gut, I knew like this opportunity is lost and I don't know when I'll get another one. It still bums me out a little bit, even though it's already been like seven, eight years and I've had other opportunities. I've tried to make other things. I have made other things. It's still one of those like... Ah, that could have been something. Um, what was the fuck up for you when you say, man, I, I really fucked that up? It was not standing up for myself. It was letting it happen. It wasn't as bad as it was before in terms of me not thinking I had power. But to actually say yes to that deal, to not value myself enough to think I could always do something else somewhere else. I didn't need this. 
No, I'm like, hey, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. This is the big one. It just happens to be a little more complicated, but we'll make it work. It was almost dead in the water. Like we ended up, you know, having to redo it because I just didn't have the time to do it right. It was such a shit show. And I knew it even through the process when the network would ask how it's going. I was lying. Oh, it's going great. We're really getting somewhere. And meanwhile, I'm like, I don't know what to focus on. And I'm giving a lot more to the documentary because that's the one that's almost done and it needs to be shepherded through the finish line. The idea of the performer having control, the person who created the product having control, that you are the person that is the most important because you're the one who's creating stuff, that didn't enter my head. It was like they're going to take it away. They have the power. And it's learning that, no, you're the one who creates. You know, I thought about this thing that Chris Rock said once when he was visiting Totally Biased. He said, every career slump I've had, I've written myself out of it. And I think about that all the time. It's such a simple piece of advice, but it's like, it basically is like, you're the engine. You last forever. Executives change, networks change. You're the most valuable thing in there. You're the one that will get you out of anything. So, you know, if this doesn't happen, you can make something else happen. I did not have that mentality. When you look at cancel culture now, as a, both as a comedian and as a person of color, whether it's social media or in general, given the fact that you have been managing fear and anxiety and all that comes with being a public person and on stage, what's your view on cancel culture when it comes to comedy, particularly given recent events and, you know, Chris Rock getting slapped and Dave Chappelle being attacked and then just the general state of things? There was a time where that fear, like if you were a black person, for example, in the 60s, or even today, we don't even need to say 60s, there are tons of things you probably wanted to say to people. And you couldn't say it because you'd be canceled. But the cancellation meant you're fired. Cancellation meant you were harmed. Right. Right. Like marginalized people have always been afraid to say things. Right. That's why people are in the closet. Because they're afraid to actually say what they are because of cancellation. You know, none of this is the government. Right. Like Lenny Bruce is the only comic that was truly canceled. I mean, he died of a morphine overdose, but it was really the government and the Supreme Court case against him and all this other stuff that was happening to him. That's cancellation. The rest of this to me is society trying to figure out how to have public conversations in spheres that aren't properly built for them. You just hit on something really like a nerve of something really, really wise, which is that cancel culture in and of itself is more of an issue because the accountability is being, it's the people who are advantaged, privileged, who have more power are being basically held to a different standard than people in power are used to. Is that part of what yes. you're saying? Right. Are you ever really canceled? Are people like Louis C.K. won a Grammy? I don't think so because the majority of people don't agree with quote unquote cancellation, right? They don't agree with the idea that like this person did something horrible and they have to address it. Most people don't agree with that. So like the people who are quote unquote canceling are in the minority position. More people hate me because I made that Apu documentary than appreciate what I did. And the most of the people that hate me never saw the documentary. And, that, and, and that's part of the reality because they see me as somebody who canceled a character who has no control over that TV show or of a network. 
who has no ability to do anything but state my opinion. I fought freedom of speech with freedom of speech. And that's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to use violence. You're not supposed to, you know, and, and people running on stage obviously is scary, but that shit was happening before. That what people are treating it like it just happened. Like I had that happen to me before that happened to Chappelle, before cancel culture. I had that happen to me after cancel culture. Mm. What do we do now in terms of just our ability to laugh at one another? Do you feel like it, there's there's less room for us to laugh and make fun of each other's backgrounds and cultures now? Is that society's biggest fuck up? Is our failure to leave room for that? I think society's biggest fuck up is that we're trying to catch up. Like this Apu documentary, to me, is not interesting. I've been thinking about this stuff for 20 plus years, and nobody was able to say it. The failure there is not that we can't laugh at other cultures, like what The Simpsons does. The failure is, like, my community wasn't given a voice right. for years, where this documentary to me should have been made 20 plus years ago, but never had the ability, like, who's going to make that? Who's going to have the ability to? It's the internet, the democratization of media that is allowed for, for these conversations. So to me, society's biggest fuck up is the fact we have to catch up now. If you had the ability to ask Curry in high school, a question or give hurry advice about failures to come or moments of doubt, what would the advice be? A few things. One, it would be like, you're going to fail. It's going to happen. There is no perfect in life. It is making the best of what you have. And what you have is always going to change. And I know it seems scary that nothing is definite. And as a kid, there's always the belief that certain things are certain. Nothing is certain. Hurry Kandabolu, thank you for being here and talking with me about failure. And it's not an easy subject for anybody, but I think like all of your work, I, I in a musical term, I would think of you as a jazz artist. I don't think there are wrong notes. I think you hit a note and it's taking you someplace and you're just an incredible artist and comedian and, and person. It takes a lot to dive into this subject because nobody goes to parties to brag about their failures or, or, or these moments. But I just I appreciate you and congratulations on all of your success and only more to come. And I'm saying it as if I get credit for discovering you, but that's bullshit. But it is going to be no surprise to me just how much bigger you're going to get in the future. So congrats and thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it, Billy. Definitely. I'll talk to you soon. Hurry Kundabolu. We just had this incredible conversation about his career, his life, navigating the layers of being a comedian and a creator and the cultural complexity of being not just a South Asian person, in the world, but his experience going to college in Maine and ultimately trying to balance who he was as an artist with who he was as a person and what was going on inside of himself. And that his failures were really moments of not listening to himself. And this is a theme that keeps coming up on our podcast from people who are really successful, but their biggest moments of failure are moments where they are doubting the validity and the potency 
of their inner voice telling them this is not right for you. You don't need to compromise here. This isn't a place where you give in or this isn't the end of the world. And that is a very nuanced fuck up because we all experience it. And then it's a question of degrees. And what he really touched on, which I thought was amazing, was how do you check your own temperature in terms of your own mental health, in terms of what threshold, how far is the threshold until you cross into a place where you're not actually healthy or safe. I listened to him. I was so riveted by every word he said and really funny, really insightful, but also really trying to make sure that he is balancing that internal chemistry and making that an integral part of his life part of what has made him more successful. And had he not had that terrible panic attack on a train and literally to stop the train and get into an ambulance to find that what was wrong with him, quote unquote wrong with him, was actually just his inability to pay attention to his inner voice, the inner anxiety that he was going through. And it took an event like that more than fucking up on Letterman, more than any other professional event, my takeaway was he needed to experience that traumatic event to say, hey man, you got to pay attention to yourself. So I think we've got a theme here from this podcast. I think I'm hearing it more and more, which is that the biggest failure, the biggest fuck up that we can make for ourselves is ignoring ourselves. So that was my takeaway from him. By the way, anybody that is interested, you need to 100% search for this guy online, Hurry Kundabalu. And whether you catch him doing stand-up about Matthew McConaughey as a philosopher or in Snack vs. Chef on Netflix or his comedy albums or his stand-up on Netflix, the guy is brilliant and I'm just excited to see where it goes for me, a fan. And I hope wherever you are, make some mistakes. Yeah, I Fucked That Up is an Interval Presents original production from Silver Sound. Produced by Reed Adler and Jesse Ash. From Interval Presents, executive producers Alan Coy and Jake Kleinberg. Executive producers from Silver Sound are Corey Choi and Reed Adler. Story producer Jesse Ash. Senior producers Hunt Beatty and Rebecca Halperin. Sound, edit, design, and mix by Luke Allen. Original music by Killy Idol. Special thanks to Director of Operations Sarah Yu, Senior Director of Digital Strategy and Business Development Sheffy Ellenswag, and Director of Marketing Samara Still. I'm your host, Billy Mann. Make sure to follow Yeah, I Fucked That Up and listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. 